Please turn again in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 27. In the results of the second census, we read that in the tribe of Manasseh, there was a man named Zelophehad who had no sons, only daughters. And here in chapter 27, we find out more about this particular case, as well as the appointment of a new leader. Let's read Numbers chapter 27. This is God's word, so listen. Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these were the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcha, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses, before Eliezer, the priest, and before the leaders, and all the congregation, by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord in company with Korah. But he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family, because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. He shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers." If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the relative closest to him in his family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this Mount Abarim and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother was gathered. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the daughters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man on whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. And at his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. And so Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation. And he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him, just as the Lord commanded 
by the hand of Moses. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his word this evening. Now, last year, the census was recorded, and it takes time for all that information to be gathered up and then to be processed. But overall, the population of the USA grew by over 7% since the last census was taken in 2010. So the population of the USA now stands at just over 331 million people. The population continues to become more urban and more diverse. I like to think we had a part to play in that. But another significant feature of the census is that it determines the number of seats that a state has in the House of Representatives. The state with a bigger population will have an increase in their representation, and those with a smaller population will have less. And so some states' population increased, for example, Texas and Florida, and so they are now allowed more representatives. Other states, their population decreased or stagnated, like California and New York, and so they lost representatives. Well, in a similar way, this census in Israel had implications for the Israelites in regard to them receiving their inheritance. We see that it had both practical implications, that the bigger the tribe, the bigger the inheritance that they would receive. But there's also a spiritual implications, for God was giving to them an inheritance that their parents did not receive. And so we see God's faithful, faithfulness despite the Exodus generation's disobedience. So I want you to notice this evening, God is faithful to you, his people. You will receive your inheritance because of Christ, your Savior, brings you there. And so you are to walk faithfully in him. So firstly, notice God is faithful, so in him you have hope. Chapter 26, it marks a division in the book of Numbers. All the Exodus generation that was counted in the first census at the beginning of the book have now passed away. So all the adults that had seen the mighty works of God in Egypt, they have died in the desert. They refused to enter the promised land after hearing the report from the 10 spies that they were not strong enough to take on the inhabitants of, of the promised land. And so God punished them And so they were forced to wander in the desert for 40 years until all that generation died. All except for two, Joshua and Caleb. These were the spies who said that if God delights, he would give them the land. And so they trusted in God, but no one listened to them. Only Joshua and Caleb are therefore included from the Exodus generation in with the second generation in the census. The second generation of Israelites numbered over 601,000, as you see in your outline. And the fighting men of the Exodus generation are numbered over 603,000. So that's a decrease of 0.3% from the first census to the second census. So there's really no difference in terms of numbers. Even though the Israelites have been living in the desert for 40 years, they continue to thrive. Today, a concern for many governments is that of declining populations. And so many countries are seeing their populations declining, and it leads to many social and economic problems. 
And so these governments are now providing various incentives to encourage population growth. And COVID-19 has exasperated the problem. Because of all the uncertainty, it's led to people delaying having children. And this only makes this problem all the more acute. You would expect the same for the Israelites. They were facing much uncertainty living in the desert. Frequently, we read of the Israelites questioning, where would they have water to drink? What would they have to eat? Frequently, we see them sinning against God, and so they face God's judgment, where many of them died from plague, from snakes, from the ground opening up. They face many difficulties living in this barren land. They were vulnerable to attack from enemies. But yet, throughout the 40 years in the desert, God provided food and water. Every morning, bar the seventh day, there was manna on the ground, bread from heaven. Yes, they faced God's judgment for their sin, but they also saw God's mercy. And so God provided an interceder, that of Moses, to cry out on behalf of his people. And God provided atonement for their sins through the sacrificial system that was administered by the high priest. And so the people were rescued many times from God's judgment. And while they traveled through the desert, their clothes did not wear out. Their shoes did not wear out. They were protected from their enemies. They defeated Sion and Og, the Amorite kings. And Moses writes of God's faithfulness in Deuteronomy 29, verse 6b that you may know that I am the Lord your God. They were to recognize that God is faithful. He was their God, and so he would look after them. And the numbers of the second census is a testimony to the fact that God is indeed faithful to his people. He provided for them, so there was no uncertainty. There was no fear. He enabled them to have more children so that they replaced those who died in the wilderness. They trusted that God would bring them into the promised land, even though they would see the Exodus generation die all around them. And so they had a certain hope. And we see why in verses 52 to 56. Here we read of God saying that to this second generation, they would receive an inheritance. The promised land would be given to them. It would be divided up according to the size of each tribe, and the particular portion of land that they would receive would be determined by lot. And remember, they haven't even set foot into the promised land, and yet they have this certain hope that they had of receiving it, even at the point of receiving instructions at how to divide up this land. And God is faithful to us too. We can clearly speak of that here in Bloomington, celebrating 200 years of the existence of this church. But imagine what it was like for those Covenanters traveling up from South Carolina, leaving behind their farms, their occupations, their positions, to start all over again. There was much uncertainty, but God was faithful to them. And so they endured much hardship to start all over again. And you too must have confidence in God that he is faithful, that we too have a certain hope that he provides the next generation. This church prayed for children, and God has blessed us with children. The youth group, 
the Sunday school are the biggest this church has ever known. And so we must continue to pray that God would bless us with more children, knowing that he has done so before. And God is at work within us personally. He's changing you more and more to be like Jesus Christ. Duguid says there are many uncertainties in life, but our ultimate sanctification is not one of them. And Paul writes to the Philippians 1 and verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God will take you to the promised land. So as you travel through the wilderness, remember that God is faithful. You will receive your inheritance. Yes, there are times of difficulties. There are times of frustrations. The census, notice, is a count of fighting men. There would be warfare in the promised land. Likewise, you are in a spiritual battle against the devil and his schemes. Do not be surprised by hostility, but you are also to have hope. Nothing will separate you from God's love. Your inheritance is secure in heaven. Well, secondly, notice if you do not remain in him, you will be cut off. This passage, chapter 26, contains a number of historical incidents mixed in with the long list of names. These act as warnings from the past of those who have sinned and so were judged for their sin. Verses 9 to 11, we read of Dathan and Abiram. They contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah. And so these men, they tried to usurp Moses and Aaron's leadership even though Moses and Aaron had been appointed by God. Korah, remember, was a Levite who wanted to offer fire before the Lord. And so he wasn't happy with his position as a lowly Levite. No, he wanted to be a priest. He wanted to come before God and offer the sacrifices. Along with him were Dathan and Abiram. And these men were Reubenites. For them, it was more political They were not willing to take orders from Moses. Why should Moses be in charge? Why should they not be in charge since they are members of the tribe of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel? So God judged them for contending against the Lord's anointed. In doing so, they were contending against God himself. And so we read they were swallowed up in the ground. But not only them... Also, the families of Dathan and Abiram, they died in their father's tragedy. And so the result was these families were cut off. None of their descendants would enter the promised land, with the exception of Korah's family. And we'll look at that later. Verse 19, we read of Ur and Onan. These were two sons of Judah. Ur was married to Tamar, but he was a wicked man. And so we read of God killing Ur in Genesis 38. His brother Onan then married Tamar, as was tradition, and their first son would have been an heir to Ur. But Onan refused to provide an heir, and so God killed him too. So God judged these men for their wickedness. And so we see that God is consistent in his judgment of sin. This was not something that simply happened during the wilderness years. Even before, when these men were in Canaan, They face God's judgment for their sin. And so their families would not receive an inheritance in the promised land. In verse 61, we read of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, 
who offered unauthorized fire to the Lord. And the result was that fire from the Lord consumed them. They did not follow God's commands precisely. They used the wrong fire. And it's a warning that you are to worship God in the, only in the way he has instructed. To disobey is to face God's wrath. And so in each incident, we read of disobedience to God. They did not obey God because they doubted God. They thought that they knew better. And the result was that it led to their death. Well, one other thing that stands out from this census is the tribe of Simeon. And this tribe stands out because it decreased by over 60%, as you can see from your outline. Now, we cannot be sure for the reason for this. Now, last week we considered Simri, the Simeonite, who broke God's law by taking a foreign woman and bringing her into the camp, into his tent, in front of everyone, all the while a plague was ravishing Israel. And quite possibly, this plague hit the tribe of Simeon the worst because of the sexual immorality that was so rampant in this tribe. Was that why Zimri was so hardened in his sin? Because he had been influenced by his clan into thinking that this was normal? Well, we can't be sure. But there is a warning here. While God is faithful, if you continue in your sin, you will face the consequences of sin, which is death. The wages of sin is death. Each of these men did not believe in God. They doubted God. They doubted his promises. They doubted his faithfulness. And so they would not obey his commands. Duguid says, unbelief is a great sin because it is robbing God of some of the glory that is due his name. God takes the honoring of his name very seriously indeed, and unbelief dishonors it. Not only did it affect them, it affected their families. Their family line ended because, as, so, as it so clearly demonstrated in this census, you must recognize that your sin affects not only you, but it also affects your family too. And you set before them an example which they are watching, and oftentimes they closely follow. In Northern Ireland, during the political troubles from the 1970s to 1990s, they often played advertisements on the television to encourage peace. And one advertisement went with a Cat Stevens song, Cats in the Cradle. And in this advertisement, it depicted a man who was involved in terrorism, while his son was growing up. And later in the advertisement, when his son had grown up, you hear the lyrics of the song, he had grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. And so we see the son was a terrorist, just like his dad. I don't imagine you had advertisements like that in the 70s, but that was something they thought would, would help us in Northern Ireland. But there is truth to it. Often our children grow up just like us. Your desire is for your children to love God. Your desire is that your children surpass you, even in your commitment to God. But when you doubt, when you don't trust him, well, you are setting that example to your children. Jesus says in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. 
for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gathered them and threw them into the fire, and they are burned. And so these men who are cut off are a warning to the Israelites that the same would happen to them. And it's also a warning to you too. If you don't respond to God's faithfulness, if you don't trust God, well, you too will be cut off, you and your family too. Well, thirdly, cry out to God, for he is gracious. Chapter 27, verses 1 to 11. Now, we do see instances where the family line continues even after the father has sinned. For example, the children of Korah. They did not follow their father in his rebellion. They stood apart from him, and so they did not suffer the same consequences of his sin. And so here is an exception to children always following the examples of their parents. And so it is an encouragement for children of unbelieving parents to know that their fate is not fixed. These sons of Korah became influential in the nation of Israel. They wrote a number of the Psalms that we sing in the Bible. God in his mercy spared them, and in response, they praise God. In chapter 27, we read of another instance of God's graciousness. The census was about allocating land, but here were folk who would miss out. We read of a man named Selephahad who had five daughters, no sons, and Selephahad died as a result of his sin in the wilderness. His daughters were keen to express that their father was not involved in Korah's rebellion, so he had not forsook his inheritance in the promised land. Instead, he most likely died in he most likely died as a result of not believing um, of not believing Joshua and Caleb instead falling for the report of the other ten tribes and so would not enter the promised land. And so he was one of the Exodus generation. Well, these women must have been very young in that they were not married and so not financially provided for. That left them in a vulnerable position because only sons inherit. And if there are no sons... Well, the inheritance would go to Selephahad's brothers or cousins. As a result, his name would disappear altogether. His land would be absorbed by these relatives, and the daughters would get no inheritance. Without land, they would have no means to provide for themselves. And so the excitement that everyone was having around them about entering the promised land would have been lost on them. And so interestingly, they speak of confidence of the Israelites entering the promised land. And they want a possession of that land too. They want their father's name to be remembered. And so their faith in God is obvious, and they cry out to God through Moses. Reynolds writes, Their desire to keep the allotment in the family is not some kind of land grab, but rather an act of faith on their part. It is simply not right that something graciously given could be so easily lost. And so Moses brings their case to God. And God shows grace to these women and to all women who find themselves in their circumstance. They would now receive an inheritance. So it demonstrates faith in their part. It demonstrates faith in the sons of Korah too. Despite their parents' sin and rebellion, they still acted in faith. Well, you too may not have had the blessing of Christian parents 
but you too are still to act in faith, assured that God is gracious. But what if you are one of the ones who have committed rebellion? You have committed sin. Well, if you continue in your rebellion, you will be cut off. But if you turn to God, you will know of his grace. Dugu says God's faithfulness to carry through to completion the things that he promised in spite of our sin is good news for us. Last week, we considered Simri, who was caught in his sin. We read of Phineas, who had a zeal for God, put Simri to death, fulfilling his responsibilities as a priest. Now, it'd be wrong to think that Simri wasn't tempted at all, uh, like Zimri, or that Phineas wasn't tempted at all, like Zimri, by these Moabite women. It's not that Phineas was not a sexual sinner like Simri was, but while Zimri engaged in his sin without repenting, Phineas, he stepped out in faith. He put sin to death. He was zealous for God, for he knew in God there is grace. And so you too must recognize God's graciousness. You must cry out to him. Demonstrate your faith in his grace, and so you will receive your inheritance. Well, fourthly, let's notice, recognize the limitations of a leader who only provides the law. Moses would not go into the promised land. Remember at Meribah, how the people needed water, and so they complained to Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron, they went before God, and he gave them instructions. Speak to the rock, and water would pour forth. So God wanted to show to the people that he was patient with them, that he was gracious toward them. Moses, however, he did not communicate this. Instead, he spoke rash words. He was angry with the people. He struck the rock twice. And so Moses did not speak or display God's grace to the people. And God judged him for that. And as a result, he would not enter the promised land. God would still allow him to see the promised land. And so he would go up Mount Arborim and would see the land that the people would inherit. And then he would be gathered up to his people just like his brother Aaron. So while Moses falls short of the promised land, that does not mean he fell short of heaven. Later we read of Moses with Jesus at the transfiguration, speaking to Jesus about his own exodus, from this earth, his own departure, which would be his death on the cross. And so through Christ, Moses can enjoy salvation in heaven and be reunited with his people. And what comfort this brings us, especially in our own sadness this week. This week we have the funeral of our dear sister, Jean McBurney, and this is the truth for her, that she will be gathered to her people. And this is true for all of God's people. And so what beautiful words that bring us comfort in our sadness. Matthew Henry writes, This is an encouragement to us to think of death without terror and to even please ourselves with the thought of it. It is but to die as such and such died if we live as they lived and their end was peace. They finished their course with joy. Why then should we fear any evil in this melancholy valley? But this passage here isn't really about Moses' death. That wouldn't happen until much later. We read of a fuller account of Moses' death in Deuteronomy. Instead, the point of Moses' passage, the point of this passage is God's provision of a new leader for the second generation, 
that have been recorded in the census. Moses is part of the Exodus generation, and so we read of leadership changes. Moses, he represents the law, but the law would not get you into the promised land in the same way it did not get Moses into the promised land. The law only helps you see your sin. It does not rescue you. So often we fall into this mindset that you have to obey, that you have to do something to make your way into the promised land. All other religions in this world are works religions. You have to do something. You have to do confession. You have to fast. You have to pray. You have to do charitable deeds. And there is no measure of fulfilling these works. Even in Christianity, we sadly often turn it into a works religion. No, you will fall short. You will not reach the standard. The standard is perfection. And no one, not even Moses, who's been described as the most humble man on earth, has kept the law perfectly. So remember, Moses is the writer of this passage. He includes these verses to explicitly point out the fact that he had failed God. He had rebelled. And the result was he missed out on the promised land, nor would he lead his people into the promised land. The Israelites would need a new leader, someone who was able to take them into the promised land. And so fifthly, notice God's provision of a faithful leader who points forward to the coming of Christ. Well, Moses asked of God to provide a new leader, one who would go before them. And this speaks of a king, a warrior king who would lead his people into battle. And surely this is what the people needed as they would enter the promised land, for they would have to conquer this land. But this leader would also be a shepherd. He was to care for the well-being of the people. And we see how God appoints Joshua to this position. And this comes as no surprise. Joshua was being prepared for this role. But here was his official ordination. For Moses lays his hands on him. And so this is a sign of passing on of authority to him. Joshua would be the new leader of Israel. Joshua would be the one who would bring the people into the promised land. He would accomplish what Moses could not accomplish. But Joshua does not fulfill the leadership of Moses He doesn't fully fulfill it because um, his power would be limited. There would be a change in the leadership structure. Moses' office was unique in that he had, to a certain degree, fulfilled the office of prophet, priest, and king. Well, now these offices would be divided. We see Eliezer, the priest, having a prominent role in inquiring before the Lord. God would speak to him through the Urim and the Thummim to discover God's will. He would then report that to Joshua, and Joshua would then report that to the people. So this is different than Moses, who would speak directly to God. And so all the power would not rest on Joshua. And so Israel is waiting for another servant king, who would also be prophet and priest. They would wait for another Joshua, and that would come in Jesus Christ. The name Joshua means rescuer. And Joshua, translated into Greek, means Jesus. And so Jesus is our Joshua. He rescues us from our sin by going before us, defeating the enemy of sin and death. He is our shepherd. 
He takes care of us. He brings us into the promised land of heaven. He would be a second Moses. He would intercede on our behalf as a priest. He would speak the word of God as a prophet. He would deliver his people as a king. As Moses went up that mountain, yes, he would see the promised land, but he would also see all the Israelites and know that Joshua was equipped to lead them in. Well, Jesus likewise went up a mountain and saw the people. It's recorded in Matthew 9. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And so Christ would come down. He would bring those sheep with him. And you likewise are one of Christ's sheep. He has compassion on you. He has rescued you by his sacrifice on the cross to bring you into the promised land. And so this chapter speaks of God's faithfulness. He continues to be faithful today. God is faithful to you as people. You will receive your inheritance because Jesus Christ, your Savior, brings you there. And so you are to walk faithfully in him. Now, the other day, uh, there was an entry on the Gentle Reformation blog by Pastor Mark Lockridge, and he recounts the remarkable story of Jean-Pierre Adams, who was a French footballer in the 1970s and 1980s. And he passed away just recently on the 6th of September, age 73. But what is interesting is that for the past 39 years, he had been in a coma. And throughout those 39 years, he was faithfully cared for by his wife. Mark writes, she would sleep in the same room, getting up in the middle of the night to turn him. She would wash, shave, toilet, and dress him daily. She prepared his food and fed him. She talked with him, gave him presents. She rose at seven each morning and cared for him until he would fall asleep at around eight o'clock. Sometimes she would have to care for him all night. And although there was no waking consciousness, Jean-Pierre seemed to have been aware of his surroundings to some extent. His wife said in in a 2007 interview, Jean-Pierre feels, smells, hears, and jumps when a dog barks, but he cannot see. Nurses would report that his mood changed when she was not there on the rare occasions when she would be away for a night. It's an incredible story of faithfulness when many others would walk away. She kept her marriage vows, and this would mean sacrificial love for four decades. Well, God likewise is faithful to you, not for four decades, but for eternity. For you will receive your inheritance because Jesus Christ, your Savior, brings you to the inheritance. Your response is to walk faithfully before him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize that you are a faithful God. You promised that your people would enter the promised land, and throughout those 40 years in the wilderness, you cared and protected them. And so, Lord, we thank you for the confidence that we can have in you, that you will take care of us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Joshua, who has rescued us, who will bring us into our inheritance. And so, in response, help us to walk faithfully in your way, when we sin, that we would repent, knowing that you are gracious, that we find mercy in you. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, please turn in your blue psalm book to Psalm 95D. Psalm 95 speaks of the Israelites in the wilderness. They were to recognize that God was faithfully with them, how he kept them securely. Well, you too are secure in God's hands, so keep walking in his ways. Let's stand and sing Psalm 95D.